I'm sure you all know the old saying that uh, though it's going to be painful, sometimes it's best just to rip the Band-Aid off. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to just rip the Band-Aid off. Here goes. Last week's lesson, and again, I was at the Ford campus, so I'm going to have to review some of this. Uh, one of the things, uh, uh, statements I made in regards to the application of that lesson, and we will review that shortly, was that wouldn't it be an amazing blessing if Easter actually lived in us and through us the way God always intended it? And, and I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. Growing up, I learned that Easter is this amazing event, not only in our lives, but in history. And it certainly guarantees to us that we are on our way to heaven. And that is worth celebrating and rejoicing about. Unfortunately, one of the things that I failed to recognize, or maybe was uh, not taught soon enough in life, is that Easter is meant to have an impact on our lives right here and right now. And so one of the applications I suggested is this radical idea and since the lesson put it this way is there are certain things in life we should be dead to and certain things in life we should be alive to. Wouldn't it be great if we could be dead to judging one another? Wouldn't it be great if we could be dead to trying to measure other people's faith and then coming to some conclusion where we're at, where we're at in regards to where they're at? Wouldn't it be a blessing of God if we actually took that concept and flipped it upside down and we found within the premise of our faith that we could be held accountable and that we could actually hold each other accountable, not in a judgy kind of way, but in a truly loving and Christian kind of way. What that means is, is that when we struggle spiritually, we have the courage to actually reach out and ask for help from one another. And in fact, if you really look at Scripture, it's exactly how God designed us to operate. He refers to it as the body of Christ. And interestingly enough, in this very letter in which we're going through, the book of Romans, there is an entire section where Paul explains the body of Christ. Don't misunderstand me. Christians have always struggled with this concept of setting aside the sinful nature and not passing judgment and letting the new man of, of, of faith work and operate so that we can, if you will, come alongside one another and help each other. And I'm simply going to suggest that that was one of the beautiful aspects of what Easter morning means for us. I think it's an aspect that's often overlooked. Wouldn't it be amazing if we could work as a team to fight against our sinful natures and also work as a team to encourage the growth of the new man and how it operates in our lives? One of the things I also mentioned was is it would truly be a joy. Not if we only found the courage, but we could be in a trusting relationship, not only with our Lord, with one another, where uh, we couldn't really ask for prayers for one another. I know we do the prayer board, and, and we've been practicing this for, for some time, and it's a beautiful thing. But there's a lot of other areas of our spiritual lives where it would really be to our benefit if we could actually bring our numbers together and fight against sin and temptation as one body. I think there would be tremendous joy not only for you as individuals, but for me as a pastor, and we'll get more into that as we uh, unravel this message. One of the things that I, I'm trying to make sure that we go home understanding is that as much as we celebrate Easter for our eternal lives, it is really time for us to start celebrating Easter for our new life, our new earthly life. All right, here's the component that I'm talking about, and this is what we were introduced last week, that before faith and technically before what Christ accomplished at the cross, each and every one of us was dead in sin. The only thing that controlled us was our sinful nature. But the resurrection changes all that. We were raised again to new life. 
We're now dead to sin. And this, I'll be honest, is a concept that for much of my Christian life I have truly wrestled with. And so what you're finding yourselves is you're on a path of discovery as Pastor Krause is on a path of discovery. I'm trying to understand what we simply throw into the category of sanctification. But this year I've really dedicated myself to figuring out some of the nuts and bolts of how I can take advantage of the life that God always wanted me to live right here and right now. And we'll discuss that on a much more personal level in just a moment. One of the things I encouraged was that we should reach out for help from one another so I'll go first. It was a number of, year, of years ago that I actually stood about in this, spot, in this spot, and I admitted to the congregation of Abiding Shepherd that I had been unfaithful to my wife. And you can imagine the shock that that sent through the congregation, especially my wife, because she didn't know I was going to say that that day, okay? And it's something that every once in a while she still brings up. Uh, I sensed the relief of the congregation and of my wife as I continued on with my confession, I admitted that I was not unfaithful with another woman, but I had been unfaithful with the church, meaning that I had put my work as a pastor and my relationship with the church above my relationship with my wife and, sadly, my relationship with my children. It took a lot for me to actually publicly admit that and to finally recognize that in my life, but ever since then, God has put me on a path of recovery, if you will, and it has been a blessing to both my marriage and my relationship with my children. So I'm going to just swallow my pride and go back to those dark days and, and revisit that because the reality is what I admitted to all of you was that I had an addiction. Most of us do. We don't like to admit it, but there's something in our life which we tend to go to to help ease the pain, oftentimes emotional, to salve our consciences and help our way through. And what finally happened was is that God helped me to understand what was going on in my life, and I continued to discover these things. You see, workaholism, and that's what my addiction was, uh, is one of those few addictions in this world that isn't properly diagnosed. In fact, rather than calling it out for what it is, oftentimes it's celebrated. And I'll tell you, that has never been as true as it is in the ministry. Because workaholics get a lot of work done. There's just no two ways about it. And that is especially helpful when you're planting a new church and trying to grow it. On the surface, it looks like God is blessing situations and, and it feels right, but the reality is, is that my wife wasn't getting the husband she deserved. And my children were missing out on the time with their father and some of their most informative and important years of my life. And while I regret that greatly, I also see how God has used all of that to bring me to where I'm at today. Because it truly has been a path of discovery. I was trying to be super pastor. Not because I was concerned about saving the world, although that's how I worked it out in my head. The reality is, is I was raised in such a way, and I had my own weaknesses, that I felt that my value and my worth was measured by how much I could do in a day's time. I literally was working myself to death. Fortunately, by the grace of God, he put a stop to that. He kind of turned things around, and I appreciate my wife in ways I never had before and my sons as well. So I want to let you know there's a beautiful rainbow on the other side of this journey and God is truly good. But the reality is, is that we all struggle with something and it's something that we have easy access to a solution for and sometimes I think what we forget is Easter is what does that. Because quite literally I was dead in sin at least in a part of my life even though I was claiming to be a Christian Hopefully I was, but now there's certain areas in my life where I can be dead 
to sin. You see, that's what today's message is about. As much as I want you all to celebrate the joy that is waiting for us when we cross the finish line of this life, there is so much joy, there is so much blessing that is waiting for us if we properly understand how God wants to bless us in this life. And I'm not going to sugarcoat or lie to you. Sin is what stands in the way of that. And, and for us each, we all have our personal battles that we fight with this. We each have our things that we try to help ease us through. It's a constant day-to-day tug-of-war with sin. Paul, in this lesson today, offers us insight, if you will, some aha moments that blesses us, blesses us in such a way to recognize that God wants us to live this new life right here and right now. The goal of the fly fisherman is to catch trout through skillful deception. The test is the pitting of the fisherman's knowledge and skill against the noble trout. He will often craft by hand the lures he uses. He knows these artificial insects embedded with tiny hooks need to be perfect deception because the trout will identify even the slightest flaw and reject the fly. Like the fly fisherman who knows that the trout are driven by hunger, Lucifer also knows our hunger or our weaknesses. Satan knows how to exploit and ensnare us with artificial substances and behaviors of temporary pleasure. He uses addiction to steal away agency. And when that happens, the hook is set and Lucifer takes control. For those of you who have fallen prey to any kind of addiction, there is hope because God loves all of his children. And because the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ makes all things possible. For as the Apostle Paul claimed, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. I testify to you, your body, mind, and spirit can be transformed, cleansed, and made whole. And you will be freed. Your body, mind, and spirit can be transformed, made whole. How? Well, here's what we're going to do. Because this is a running series through chapter 6, I want to begin by reading last week's lesson. And Pastor Abrahamson did an excellent job of working through that. And we'll talk about some of the components of that. And not to lose the continuity of the Holy Spirit's train of thought, then we'll go right into this week's lesson. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And then Paul goes on to say, if we've been united with him like this in his death, 
we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, there's an important piece of information, or if you will, some upfront business that we have to take care of, and it's how Paul begins. We have to talk about the things that Paul's not saying to the Roman Christians or to us. It has to do with the fact that he opens up this section with what is known as a conditional sentence. And conditional sentences from one language to another can be a little bit tricky because in English it almost sounds like Paul has doubts about whether or not the Roman Christians genuinely trust in Christ as their Savior and whether there's true connection. That's not at all what he is saying, and that's not the way this should be rendered. In fact, it really works out better in our language if we take away the if, that is normally the introductory word to a conditional sentence, and begin with since. It works better on our ears. Since we have been united with him like this in his death. The reason why the Holy Spirit has Paul use a conditional sentence, and it's a very simple condition that Paul uses because it sets up a precedent, a precedent of scripture and a precedent for our lives. If this first portion is true, or let me put it like this, since this first statement is true, then everything which follows must also be true. So if I ask you, are you connected to Christ? And hopefully in your mind you're all going, yeah, I'm connected with Christ. I've been given this gift of faith. Everything Christ did on the cross matters for me, my life, and my eternity. So of course I'm connected for Christ. Then everything else we discuss from this lesson must then, by nature of the grammar, also be true. There's something else and why it's such a beautiful thing how the Holy Spirit works. Because if you notice, this conditional sentence begins with a truth that leaves us out of the equation. You see, none of us decided to get connected to Christ. Like one day we thought it would be a good idea if we could leave sin behind. And all of a sudden embrace this amazing gift that God has given to us. The truth begins with the grace of God. That God loves us so much that he did not want to leave us drowning in our sins and headed to hell. So he decided to reach out. He decided to regraft us into his tree of life. He decided to adopt us back into his family. And there's a reason why scripture uses those terms. Because God chose to love us. And based on that love, now everything is true and must follow. You see, when God the Father looks at us, what he sees has been destroyed is the shame, the guilt, and the punishment of sin. And I would think that all of us were taught that, maybe from little on, that Christ's death on the cross releases us from all of the deadly features of sin. And yet we still have a problem. If your life is anything like mine, and I rejoice that Jesus has done that, all this for me, I still sin, and I still wrestle with sin, and I still fight temptation. I've admitted to you that there's certain things in my life that I'm constantly trying to get better at, if you will, not only because it serves God, and not only because it is a blessing to the people in my lives, but it's just a better way to live. It's so much more fulfilling. My days are so much more filled with joy. I want more of that, and that's what God wants for me, and that's what God wants for you. And so Paul sets up the second part of this condition. The first part is true, so he says, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. And hopefully you remember that one of the components that was discussed with last week's lesson is pointing to the sacrament of baptism, it is one of the change agents that God does to transform our lives. 
And maybe it's good if we go back, get out our catechisms, and review the four parts of baptism. In fact, I actually put two of them in my lesson last week because they're very helpful to remind us that this isn't just something we look at. This isn't something we do for God. This is what God does for us to connect us directly to the empty tomb, to transform us from being dead in sin to now being dead to sin. And if you're anything like I am, I'm going, that is great news. But I still have a problem. I still wrestle with sin. I still fight temptation. Uh, it still catches me off guard. There are days where I feel awful because I know better. And I find myself drowning in this sinfulness because I still have this evil nature. It doesn't leave us until the day God takes us out of this world. One of the amazing blessings of Easter on the physical side. What God promises, though, is transformation right now, transformation of one's spirit, of one's mind, of one's, if you will, emotions and how we think and how we feel. What's Paul talking about? So this is why I included those passages for you, and this is very important. And I know sometimes I can get a little picky about the grammar, maybe more so than Pastor A, but the reason is, is there's so much that's in there. Both in the gospel lesson, which, by the way, was mistranslated, okay, and also in what Paul writes to the Galatians, he uses a very specific term. And these terms tell us that while Easter is an amazing message which echoes into eternity, you are on your way to heaven, there is something right now Easter is meant to render. It's in this strange verb form, the errorist. And I'm sure I've talked about it before, but I don't often because the problem is there's, there's no direct link in our English language. So I put in the box what a good Greek grammar would say about the aorist lesson or the aorist tense. But the reality is the closest thing we might have in our language would be a past perfect. That's not even a form we talk about. Here's where I'm trying to get to this. There's something unique about the aorist language where it describes an event, a punctiliar event, where so much changes in one moment's time. It is in the past. It has been accomplished. And that's why this should say, so if the Son has set you free, you will be free indeed. And my goodness, he has set us free. He says the same thing to Galatians. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Paul is describing two specific moments in time, in history, in our lives. The first is when Christ breathed his last on the cross. From that moment on, that one point in time, everything in our relationship with God the Father was changed. Sin no longer convicted us as worthy of death and damnation. From that moment on, the moment he said, it is finished and breathed his last, God could not ever again see how evil and sinful we are because whenever he looks at us, he sees only the perfect life and the sacrifice of his son. Remember, that's the first truth and everything must be built on that and it all goes back to God's love. But imagine a creator, imagine a father who loves his children so much who would only promise that one day things will get better. A God this big, a God this full of love says that's not enough that one day your life will be better. I'm going to give you Easter and that's going to change something. And I don't know if you've ever heard it this way, but the moment Christ's lifeless body took its first breath, that changed our relationship with ourselves. I know that's a, a weird way to put it. Paul says no longer slaves to sin. Okay, I think we're pretty clear so far. I'm guessing we're all pretty much on the same page, but let me describe for you the problem I've had with this simple truth, and, and I'm going to guess you've had too. 
I know that I have been a child of God since the moment of my baptism, if not before. My mother was a faithful churchgoer because uh, my dad was the pastor, so I probably heard the gospel before I was ever born. Whatever the moment in time was, God changed me for eternity. And I was raised in that faith. I learned more about what that meant. I was led to thank God for all of these amazing gifts and blessings. But I have struggled. Because if your life is like mine, my life is this notorious, this hideous cycle. I recognize myself as a child of God. My mind is fully set on doing what God wants me to do. I've come to recognize that when I actually live my life the way that God designed me to live my life, it is so much better. There's nothing but blessings. It's sunny days. But then somewhere, almost out of nowhere, there's this temptation. And I find myself standing there going, should I? Shouldn't I? And I know the consequences of both decisions. If I sin, not only I'm rebelling against God, but I'm pretty much shooting myself in the foot. On the other hand, if I serve the Lord, and then I know that's what he wants, it is truly a blessing, but the devil's right there going, hey, you're doing pretty good today. He never leaves us alone, and I've got this weakened nature which constantly puts me in this tailspin, this cycle. I'm going to venture a guess that's kind of how your life goes too. And, and if you've come to that point, it can get pretty frustrating. That's that whole phrase about amending our sinful life. It doesn't mean we're promising to be perfect. It simply means that the Holy Spirit has touched our hearts in such a way that I hate sin, and I love God. I don't want to do the things that wreck my life. I want to do the things that bless my life and bless your lives too. So there must be some key component that either I didn't learn or didn't understand. I, I am convinced that maybe this is one of those areas that we've avoided talking about more and more because it requires a great deal of honesty, vulnerability, if you will. It's hard to go to another person and say, you know, I'm struggling with this, I'm struggling with that. It's hard to go to another person, at least if you have my personality, and say, I need help. I can't do it all. So you see how even as we study these things and learn them, the devil is right there going, no, don't believe that, or you're better than that. The reality is, is that God has given this gift of being the body of Christ, the very thing that can help pull us along, and we tend to avoid it. And that's why I'm ripping the Band-Aid off, and I'll start, and hopefully... God blesses you to follow. In fact, Paul, in the very next chapter of this letter, talks about this day-to-day -day struggle that he goes through. He recognizes the reality of the two natures, that he was born with that sinful nature, the old Adam. That's where it comes from. And how that constantly tries to get him to go against God. But then he also recognizes the Holy Spirit, when he brings us to faith, blesses us with this new life nature. We call it the new man. We have these fancy theological words for these things. But what does it really mean? What does it mean when the rubber hits the road and you walk out this door and you have to go live your life and you face these day-to-day -day struggles and challenges? How do you find the blessings that God wants for you? How do you avoid the pitfalls that constantly try to lead us away from God? Oops. That's why I included this one too. I think I'll probably do this till the end of this series. And this is what's important about the grammar because in Romans 12, Paul finally gets to the point, this word transform, which literally means a renovation project. You are all a renovation project. And some of us have been being renovated for a lot longer than others, but it's in the present tense. That means it's not completed. This lifetime, it will not be completed. But every day, a little bit more gets done. 
what I'm trying to say to you is we have the capacity, as Paul is describing for us, to say no to sin. But there are certain things we need to understand, certain training we need to have in order to fight that good fight. I used this example last week, and I think I'll use it again for those of you who, who uh, didn't see uh, or watch the sermon that I, I presented. It's an example that uh, I, I found in this book that I'm going through trying to better and better understand this. And it's the example of me being a father. The day my son Caleb was born, I was a father. Actually, the day he was conceived, I was a father, but we'll use birthday as the, as the visual component for this. I held him in my hands. I gotta tell you, I was really proud to be a father. I didn't know what he was gonna grow up and put me through, okay? But I was still proud to be a father. But I'm a different kind of dad than I was back then. I've learned what my role is. I've come to learn better what my children need. I've tried to, if you will, be there for them in ways that I wasn't earlier on in their lives. I think I'm in a good place in my relationship with my sons. I'm a different father than I was back then. I was always a father. I was always, if you will, the first truth, a child of God and on my way to heaven. But he's been, God has been teaching me what it means to be a father. And I hope I'm a better father today than I was all those years ago. The same thing is true with our spiritual lives. You have been made perfect in the blood of Christ. That's one component. That's the first truth. But there is a second truth. You can grow in this life, this new life. You can practice it. You can become, for a lack of a better way of saying it, better at fighting sin. Now, let me show you some insights, some ahas that God has given me. One is, is that this is not a consistent, or if you will, a nice upward trajectory. Some days we're up, some days we're down. That's the way sanctification works. Some days we're on point with God, and other days it's like you could tell me the same truth a thousand times, and I still wouldn't hear it. So don't beat yourself up if you're saying, I'm not making enough progress. I did that to myself for years. I should be a better Christian, which in and itself is a lie. Christians are perfect. God made us that way. But he also gives us the capacity and the ability to fight against temptation and sin and the renewing of the mind, the renewing of the spirit, the renewing of the emotions is one aspect of that. I know most of us were taught this is the moment when sin ruined us. And in part, that's absolutely true. That's why we call it the old Adam. It brought into this world a brokenness and it brought to each of us a brokenness, a natural tendency to want to rebel against God. And it's okay if we blame Adam. You naughty rascal. Look at what you've done to us. But there comes a point where we have to take some accountability of our own spiritual lives. And sometimes we don't know exactly how to do that. So, here's what I'm going to do. And this is one of those aha moments. I'm, I'm trying to get these things straight in my own head. And once you know it, I got this magazine, uh, that I went through, uh, and, and it's from another religion. Uh, it's Christian, but not Lutheran, and that's okay. Um, but it's an article about pastors, and it offered me some amazing insight. The, the title is My Well is Empty, Adverse Childhood Experiences Among Pastors. And as I'm reading through this, I'm going, oh man, that sounds familiar. Then I go through another paragraph, I'm going, oh, Boy, I think I'm beginning to understand me a little bit better. Do you know that most pastors and teachers, I think, fit in the same category? We come from some of these single most dysfunctional families on the face of this earth. They actually did a survey, and that's why I'm sharing this with you, because it's not any about any Lutheran pastors you know, except Pastor Crozy. 
and it talks about some of the brokenness on page two and by the way there's a stack of these help yourself to these after the worship service and if you read through this I hope that some aha moments come to you if you have any follow-up questions go ahead and email them to me I'll be I'll be painfully honest with you as I went through these trigger factors if you will I'm not, I'm not gonna say they all apply to me my dad didn't go to prison I, I'm not fighting that battle but I was, I was raised in such a way where I think emotionally I was broken and, and that starts to play into, okay, how do, how do I measure the value of my life? And, and these things start to make sense to me. So if you're brave enough and you're willing to, if you will, see why your pastor, I'll use the singular, is as broken as he is, uh, help yourself to this article. It's offered some amazing insight. It offered me an aha moment. And once you have the information, then you can start to craft a plan to deal with it. Power, uh, knowledge is power, and, and there's, there's a lot of truth to that. Or as the Lord says, the truth will set you free. Free from your fight with sin. Let me offer another insight, and I'm not going to give you a lot of details now, but I'm going to whet your appetites. The last part of this pass through Romans 6, and we'll study it in more detail, Easter changes not only our relationship with ourselves, but it changes our relationship with God's holy law. Understanding that, and we'll, we'll get into great detail when we get to that lesson, understanding the change we have in the, our relationship with God's holy law is so enlightening. Because now to try and use guilt or shame or the law to motivate absolutely does the exact opposite of what God designed us to do. I don't know about you, but I grew up, and I still have to fight this, whenever a teacher or a parent or somebody in authority said, you should do this. My first thought is, no, I don't. And you might think, well, you're a sinner. Of course, that's a given. But it has to do with the law. And it's this amazing insight into what changes because of Easter in our relationship with the law. There is the capability now given to us because of Easter where we can literally say no to sin. And I, I hope you've heard this. Before Easter, sin controlled us. It was our master. We were slaves to it. Now Easter has set us free. We do not have to sin. And, and I think part of my own problem is, is, well, sinners sin. That's what they do. That, that's true. But we've also been given this new life nature, this perfect nature, this new man. And what does it do? It does perfection because God has empowered us to do perfection. So we can stand there. I don't want to say we're neutral, but at least we're finally on an even playing field where we can actually say no to sin and walk away from the tree of knowledge of good and evil and live the way that God created us to live. There's something else that we should understand, and here was the biggest aha moment for me. This phrase, we were crucified, our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with. Oftentimes that's translated as be destroyed, be abolished, well, here it's done away with. And I'm not saying that's a wrong translation, but that's the secondary layer of meaning to this phrase, this hina kategrate. Literally, and its number one meaning is to be rendered idle, to make inactive, to leave inoperative. That's different. It's not annihilated. It's not gone. Easter has rendered our sinful nature idle. That is, if we don't wake it back up. This is the best illustration I could think of to help us understand this aha moment. It's like the VZV virus. 
That's the acronym for the virus that gives us chickenpox. And I'm sure most of you know this, but it's the perfect illustration. After you recover from chickenpox, that virus is not annihilated, it is not destroyed. It lays dormant within our bodies. And it might be that way for years, for decades, and maybe for some of us, it may never come back to life. But for most people, somewhere along the way, there's some kind of trigger event, something that happens to us physically, biologically, that awakens this virus, and it hurts even more the second time around. You get shingles. I've never had them. I've ministered to people who have, and I know it's no fun. Wouldn't it be better if that virus was left dormant, if we had that kind of control? Well, when it comes to the virus of sin, the sinful nature, there are certain things that we can do to avoid waking it back up. And there are certain ways to deal with it. That according to God's creation of our human bodies, the one who knows our minds better than we know them ourselves, he has ways to help us avoid these trigger events. And one of them might simply be that we learn how to fight the virus in the first place. What are the things in my life that the devil has recognized that often trip me up? What are the affections of my heart, things that have been wired to naturally be a good thing between me and God, that somehow sin is twisted into something else? Are there certain paths in my life that I should take, and are there certain paths in my life that I should avoid where I'm not waking up the sinful nature to do its dirty work and damage against me? And one of them are so simple, and all I can say is thank God that he has the wisdom to be the creator and that he would create us this way. Not so long ago, many scientists believed that the brain did not change after childhood, that it was hardwired and fixed by the time we became adults. But recent advances in only the last decade now tell us that this is simply not true. The brain can and does change throughout our lives. It is adaptable, like plastic. Hence, neuroscientists call this neuroplasticity. How does neuroplasticity work? If you think of your brain as a dynamic, connected power grid, there are billions of pathways or roads lighting up every time you think, feel, or do something. Some of these roads are well-traveled. These are our habits, our established ways of thinking, feeling, and doing. Every time we think in a certain way, practice a particular task, or feel a specific emotion, we strengthen this road. It becomes easier for our brains to travel this pathway. Say we think about something differently, learn a new task or choose a different emotion. We start carving out a new road. If we keep traveling that road, our brains begin to use this pathway more and this new way of thinking, feeling or doing becomes second nature. The old pathway gets used less and less and weakens. This process of rewiring your brain by forming new connections and weakening old ones is neuroplasticity in action. The good news is that we all have the ability to learn and change by rewiring our brains. If you have ever changed a bad habit or thought about something differently, you have carved a new pathway in your brain and experienced neuroplasticity firsthand. With repeated and directed attention towards your desired change, you can rewire your brain. Correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong here, but the way I was raised, I'm going to guess it's very close to the way you were raised. Whenever you got caught doing something wrong, almost without exception, the first thing you were told is don't do that. You all agree with me? Is that pretty much what you heard? 
Did anybody ever stop and explain to you that before you deal with the action, you should deal with how you think about the action? Most, even in religious circles, the way this works is first they want you to change your behavior, and then eventually it's assumed the way you think about that behavior will change. It's 180 degrees off of how God has designed us. God says, first I want your mind to be transformed, and then we'll deal with the hands. You see, you don't have to actually commit the sin for it to be sin. One of the things that Paul goes on and on about in the book of Romans is coveting, which is a sin that takes place in the mind and in the heart, which ultimately leads to the sin of stealing. But how do you deal with the sin of coveting? It is a mindset. It is a heart set, if you will. God says, first and foremost, I want your mind transformed. You need to think about these things differently. And I'm not trying to point a finger at my teachers or my parents, because I did the very same thing with my children. I would use the law in an abusive way. I would unfortunately try to correct their behavior without sometimes sitting down and explaining why we want to follow the correct behavior. I'm wondering if maybe the Lord is in front to bring us to a time, especially with what's given what's going on in this world, where a lot of people don't even know the difference between right and wrong anymore, is that if he isn't asking his children, the body of Christ, to actually, if you will, come together to first and foremost bless our own lives and then be a blessing to the lives of others, especially our neighbors and friends that don't have any idea how good this life can actually be when we live it the way that God created us to live this life. I hope this new insight, if you will, or maybe this aha moment, now when you go to the epistles and you start to read certain sections of how Paul's encouraging the young Christians, he talks about this. He talks about the training before he ever talks about the event. He likes to use these athletic illustrations or these war illustrations, military illustrations. And he says what you need to do is, is you need to train before you get to the big day. It's kind of his way of saying what you need to do is, is find this new spiritual muscle memory so that when it comes time to fight the battle, when it comes time to fight the race, it's a natural, it's almost an automatic reflex for you. That, that's what God has created within our own minds. The more you think about doing what not just pleases God but is best for us, the more we do it. And the more we do it, the pathways become stronger. So that when we confront temptation, when the virus tries to come back to life, we're ready to deal with that. I simply want to point out, and, and I taught these lessons without even fully understanding how God does this. The first three lessons of this series. The apostles went from frightened men hiding to these bold witnesses who were willing to show up publicly in the temple courts and teach and preach even though the Sanhedrin said don't. What preceded the change of their actions was the Holy Spirit changed their way of thinking. The same thing was true of the Apostle Paul when we talked about him. What changed in him before he decided to no longer want to kill Christians to actually sharing his faith to create more Christians? First, the Lord changed how he thought. Same thing was with the Apostle Peter in the third lesson. A man who was so afraid that he might end up dying that he would deny Jesus... How does he get to that point where he's thinking, I would rather die than in any way, shape, or form deny my Lord or bring dishonor to his name? That's not something that we can do for ourselves. It all goes back to the first truth. God has done things to empower us to do this. 
But we also have come to a point in our Christian lives where we have to admit, where we have to acknowledge, now God is asking me to be responsible, to be accountable with my spiritual life. And wouldn't that be easier if I was there to help you and you were there to help me? Let me wrap this up by giving you one more insight, an aha moment, if you will, and that becomes this acronym of a pretty familiar section of scripture that I now see so much differently than I ever did before, the prodigal son. And I know you've all been taught it, I've preached on it. Here's a bad son, selfish, gets all his goods, goes, runs into tough times, comes back, crawling back. What if we looked at it the way that it's actually written? And that's where these three letters come in. The son finally recognized what was wrong with his life. It wasn't the fact that he had squandered all of his father's money, but the fact that he had distanced himself from his family, from his father. If you will, it's a form of awakening. Uh, the, the H, he finally admitted he was the problem. He couldn't blame it on his other brother. He didn't blame it on his dad. If only he had given me more money. Finally, he said, you know what? I'm the problem. And the third part, and this is the part that typically we Christians don't like to talk about. He did something about it. The last word is he, he took action. He took responsibility. He took accountability. He got up and he went back to his father. Now, he doesn't get credit for that. God does. God made this amazing change in his life. God woke him up. God sent him an aha. I pray, not only this week, not only today, but for the rest of your life, God blesses you with those aha moments too. So what is aha? Now my wife has this cookbook at home. It's called the Three Ingredient Cookbook. She wouldn't want me to tell you that she uses this because she typically does cook with more than three ingredients at a time. The truth is, it's my cookbook. On the rare occasion I'm allowed in the kitchen, this is my go-to cooking companion because, you know, honestly, three ingredients, that's about my capacity. And one of the things I've learned uh, the hard way with this cookbook is that all three ingredients are necessary. If you try to cheat it, it doesn't work out. If you try to go with two instead of three, it's not going to taste right. The same is true with AHA. There are three ingredients. All of them are necessary. And as I've listened to hundreds, if not thousands, of stories over the years, and as I've studied the AHA moments in Scripture, I've just found that consistently there are always three ingredients. The first is awakening. It's this moment where you suddenly realize the truth about something you hadn't seen before. The second ingredient is honesty. This is where you tell yourself the truth about your situation, your life. The third ingredient is action. That's where you do something that the awakening and the honesty leads to some kind of change. And I noticed that awakening, honesty, action, they form an acronym, AHA. All three ingredients are necessary. But when one of those ingredients isn't there, it doesn't work out. Aha doesn't happen. All three are needed. And when all three come together, it can really make a life-changing difference.